The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Mike. I am Jay. On this week's episode of Film Jitsu, Jason gets to finally go for a long journey across time with <laughs> David Fincher's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. After that, we're going to get into our bottom five diseases. We'll give you some staff picks, and then Jason will reveal what his payback is to me for having to spend what I assume was a week with Benny Butts. But before we do that, let's go ahead and roll the trailer. My name is Benjamin Button, and I was born under unusual circumstances. While everybody else was aging, I was getting younger, all alone. I gave you the curious case of Benjamin Button, not because I think it's a terrible film, not because I think it was exceedingly long, although it turns out it was. That wasn't my motivation. I actually feel a little bad for having given you another really long movie. I think I'm going to extend an olive branch the next time I give you some garbage. I'll make it a cool 89 minutes. I gave you the curious case of Benjamin Button because it is so dense. It's such a bizarre jumble of elements that I thought uh, you were the right person for me to unpack all of this because <laughs> this might not be a terrible movie, but it has sort of a reputation over the passage of time as being almost a little bit of a punchline. So tell me, is the curious case of Benjamin Button worth the reputation that it has, or is it the prestige film that it was promised to be? Well, I mean, it is a prestige film, right? It won a couple. It got nominated for Oscars. It won a couple Oscars. So, I mean, it's it's definitely a prestige film. I think that the when you step back and look at the curious case of Benjamin Buttons, which we, I guess we're going to call Benny Butts. Benny now. Butts, yeah, Leah. So, Benny, Benny Butts, Butts, yeah. The number one question you have to ask yourself is how do you deal with a movie in which the central concept is so ludicrous, mm -hmm. and yet the filmmaking is so earnest, and and that's really where you start. And so, you know, you think about David Fincher. <laughs> He's one of the most exacting and meticulous directors working today. And the screenwriter, Eric Roth, uh, is an extremely well-known screenwriter. Uh, it, you know, recently he did Dune. And they all set to task with this as serious as you possibly could be and as realistically as you possibly could be. And that's kind of insane to me <laughs> about a movie where a dude ages backwards backward and yeah so exactly for me i guess the question that logically extends from that is is the idea of of benjamin buttons aging backwards it, it, what it, we have to talk i think about the difference between a gimmick and high concept because sometimes i think high concept is what we call a gimmick if it looks good enough <laughs> And so are we <laughs> well, dealing with a gimmick here or is this sort no. of high concept film? F Scott, 
Fitzgerald's original story is a high concept story. The idea of aging backwards and sort of ruminating about what that would mean. And I think what Roth does and what, what Fincher does and what Pitt does, everybody in, involved here is they try to realize that concept as realistically as possible. And you got to give credit to the special effects from Greg Canham, the makeup effects. Greg Canham, I've been following this guy's career since the howling in the early 80s. I love this guy. And, you know, Digital Domain did the special visual effects. And that's that's James Cameron's company. These were like recognizable names, all of them, everybody involved, right? Obviously Pitt. But I mean, you think about all of this talent and everybody's just absolutely Let's make this work. Let's make Benny Button real. And I tell you, when you first see the baby, it's a little weird. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, a little looking, weird. <laughs> it's like it's a little puppet type thing. You know, it could have probably made our list for, for bottom five puppets. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but then when you start seeing the scenes where as a child, Brad Pitt is playing an old man. And he's shorter than everybody else. And these effects right. are seamless. The technical wizardry here is phenomenal. And I bought it. I bought it completely. And it's funny. You you mentioned earlier about punchlines and everything. The only person I ever knew that used a punchline from this movie was you. Right. <laughs> right. You used to always say, seven, but I look a lot older. Right. Right. <laughs> that line works in the movie. In fact... If I wanted to just talk a little bit about Pitt and his performance, he does his best work in the movie under the prosthetics, which is usually completely the opposite of anyone that, that is ever doing this kind of work. He's very honest. He's vulnerable, sensitive, childlike. I buy him more in this movie as a child under this prosthetic old man makeup than I did Robin Williams in the movie Jack, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Like, it is just really the combined talents of really pretty incredible people, like, working together and making this work for the first, probably for the first 45 minutes to an hour of the flick. I think it's interesting, Jay, because we were just talking about Brad Pitt from Interview with the Vampire, and he's yeah. an actor that you have described before as somebody who needs a crutch. The yeah. eating thing that he always does in yeah. his movies, he almost has to have some sort of kinetic thing that he is doing to ground <laughs> his performance. It's like he's got mm -hmm. this busybody thing where if he's not mm -hmm. moving or, or sort of hiding behind something, do you think a guy like Pitt needs something like that to really truly... Un unload yeah i do and it's funny that you mentioned that i that i said that he needs a crutch because that's exactly what this is for whatever reason during this movie even when he's graying up his hair a little bit he's better so all the way through to about the midway point he's about the best version of brad pitt i've ever seen i mean he's doing really quality work all the way through and I was so impressed by it. And it, yeah, maybe it's this this crutch theory, you know, that he's that he's underneath all of this these layers, so he feels as though he can really reveal himself or reveal these emotions. Once the makeup comes off and he's just Brad Pitt, 
at that point, the movie's story falls apart because it's really hitting that third act. All I really remember from that is a scene on the beach and mm-hmm. it, it's rainy and Brad Pitt <laughs> is sort of long haired and he's got that kind right. of Fabio. It's like peak right. Brad Pitt sexiness. Right. And all I remember is being like, well, you know what? Yeah, maybe he was a baby a little while ago, but if I was Kate Blanchett, I'd take a swing at him right now, too. I can't blame her in this moment, uh, which See, is really saying work. something, right? Doesn't that, but that, doesn't that say something? Like, how does a film start with a gross baby puppet and, and bring you through this little old man and bring the character and the audience to a point where you'd be like, nah, I'd smash? Like, that's kind of an accomplishment. <laughs> Well, I don't know that I was there with you on that one. (laughs) He's just never been my type. But I I have to say, I think, and it's funny that you mentioned Kate Blanchett, because here's a woman who I think is almost dynamite in everything I see Mm -hmm. her in. I absolutely love her. Even Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, something like that. I think she had such a freaking blast playing that Colonel Dr. Spalco role, you know, and Probably now the only part of that movie I didn't straight up hate. Yep. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I actually really enjoy that movie, but, but it, this role in this movie, Kate Blanchett just looks pretty bored in this movie. Like I felt as though Kate Blanchett was playing Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie. Ooh. She just, <laughs> she just Shots very, fired. Ouch. She just seemed very bland, very bored. I didn't particularly like her character all that much. I mean, I'm glad she had agency in a time when women didn't. I think that Benny Butts gets a lot of credit for sort of subverting a lot of cliches. You know, you've got an African-American woman who's in charge of an elderly assisted living house, and she's the boss, you know, and nobody's questioning that. There's really nobody ever challenges her. You know, right. her station and how her authority, she has it. She has an interesting romance. Um, she takes this little white decrepit baby and raises it as her own. I bought that performance completely by Tereji P. Henson. Uh, the character name was Queenie. And I believe she was nominated for an Oscar for her trouble. She's an excellent actress. Yeah, you could... You could nominate her every time she's on screen for anything, as far as I'm concerned. Say what I will about Pitt. He was nominated as well. You know, and I know that they don't always get this right. I mean, we talked about Out of Africa, which was your (laughs) giant epic. And look, I, I, this is payback for Out of Africa, as far as I'm concerned. I think we got very similar movies in many respects. There's a lot to like here, and there's a lot not to like. And I think it was very similar. It's an epic. It's sweeping. It's a massive story. There are so many little threads going throughout. Like, just think about the first 10 minutes of the movie. So much happens. I was dizzy. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't even know what time I was in. <laughs> like, with It just jumped around so often, so wildly. And it continues to do that through two hours, 46 minutes. Just 15 minutes shy of three hours of my life watching this madness. And honestly, most of it works. From a technical standpoint, you've got first-rate work happening here. But then you hit the third act. And I think once Brad Pitt finally, or Benny Butts, <laughs> finally meets Daisy and they're adults and they finally get together and they have... You, you end up with a montage sequence, which is where you got that beach scene that you were talking right. about. It was during this montage sequence. So you have this movie that's all about time. And it's all about the passage of time. And ironically, 
they fall on the most overused cliche for to show time passing during one of the most important parts of the movie where you're finally seeing these people come together. It's the point on the map that's supposed to be the most interesting because what we have that's in right. these two characters is we have two lines going forever in opposite directions and there's one point in time where they're going to cross and they're both going to be just the right age for this relationship to be correct, ac- acceptable and manageable and realistic and, and workable. And that's supposed to be such a brief moment in time where they're going to then start going in those opposite opposite directions. Right. And and so it's just this moment where they're supposed to cross in what should be a a beautiful melancholy kind of moment. So to, to take that brief thing that this entire movie should be leading up to, right. All of the time on one side or the other of that Mm -hmm. moment is supposed to lead to this and then walk us back out of it. And so when you hit that point, and we got to get a montage. What a missed opportunity. It's a hugely missed opportunity because what's worse is there were so many scenes where intimate, small gestures carry significant weight. Like whether it's the hug in the hospital at the beginning of the movie uh, between the, the mother and the daughter or the way that uh, Taraji P. Hansen's Queenie kisses Mahershala Ali's Mr. Weathers which honestly might be one of the steamiest kisses I've seen in a while on film, just so, you know. Or it's how Benjamin listens to the sounds of houses or the way his the hands touch when Benjamin first kisses Tilda Swinton's character, Elizabeth Abbott. There, Fincher spends time on small gestures that resonate throughout this movie, but not in the time when you most need it. When these lovers finally are at that right point he it the script screenplay really just wastes it and from then on Pitt is a pretty unlikable character once they settle and they're they're in their home together this like 1960s pastiche thing or 1970s looking house that they settle in and everything it becomes very pedestrian which is nice but then he's like they're going to have a daughter named Caroline and and Pitt decides he can't do it he's got to leave that he can't see it through because it would be unfair to Daisy to have to care for Caroline and him because he's going to get, he's going to get younger and it's going to look weird and he's actually going to be older. You know, that's the, that's the sort of interesting thing about the movie and how it works. That's an improvement over Fitzgerald's story. Fitzgerald's stories, he literally comes out. He's like a full grown man. So and they creepy. don't really, t- they don't talk about the, like the mom or any of like the physics of that or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, but, is, what does the Grey's Anatomy have to say about that little feat but, of physics? But I loved, I loved the way this movie handled him being small and old and then aging into an older, smaller person, you know, like a child, you know, yeah. but this idea getting back to it, this idea that's po- posed in the third act that he should just leave because he's not going to be able to be the dad that Carolyn needs is bullshit. It's fear and it's cowardice. And I, I think that one of the central points of the movie, in fact, the writer Eric Roth actually said something along the lines of it doesn't make any difference whether you live your life backwards or forwards. It's how you live your life. Well, fine. But if you wanted us to care more about Benjamin, he should have been a better person. He doesn't stay 
for his daughter. He had plenty of time. There was right. plenty of time that he could have parented. And I think what's interesting about this movie and one of the key points that it makes is it uses this high concept to enforce that everybody's lives are just like Benjamin Button's, that we're all Benjamin Button in some respects. We're not aging backward, but we're always changing. We're always evolving. And that's a, it. And it's hit pretty hard in that movie. So when you get to the third act and he basically betrays the process that we all go through when we become parents, we're a couple, we find someone we love, we have children, we accept those responsibilities, we take accountability, and we stay in it. I don't know if tomorrow my wife is going to be harmed and I'm going to have to take care of her. I don't know what's going on upstairs in 10 years from now. I don't know. You know, uh, any number of things could happen, but we go through it together and we have each other's backs. He leaves. He deserts. And it's and it's posed as like, I'm doing this because it'll be better for you and Carolyn. And of course, she goes off and finds another person to be with and whatever else there. And then he shows up and he's a teenager later. He could have still been the dad. It would have been okay. He sure. could have done it. And it's, well, and, it's, and it's we... horseshit. And then they, they try to give they try to get you to be sympathetic which really pissed me off that the writers were like, you got to feel bad for poor Benny butts. And I'm like, fuck this guy. He walked out. So no, by that, by that point, I, it lost me. The movie really lost me. Wow. And, and isn't it the case that for those of us that aren't aging backwards, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at some point we don't all turn into a tiny little Joe Pesci monster. Cause I got to tell you, there's a point in this movie where he just looks like a little wrinkly Joe Pesci. Uh, isn't that how it works uh, we have children and then through the process of aging we decline we 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 hit sort of our peak where we go from taking care of our children to our children taking care of us and then yeah. we go out now we do that usually if things go right side by side with a partner who's having the same right, right. experience a parallel experience but in this situation it's really no different his no, form of aging isn't. is just going backwards. What that Correct. means is he, over the passage of time, becomes less able to be a provider and a protector and all of those sorts of things that he thinks are what it means to be a father, which you and I both know it's a lot more than that. But so they already it, gave him a, riches. It's a, they it's already a cheap way out. He acts as it though, was totally a cheap way he out. He acts as though becoming younger disqualifies him from fatherhood and family when which it really is, isn't any different than getting no. older. Exactly. And and he was already all set. He inherited his real father's entire estate and all the, you know, the company and all of this stuff. So there was no reason he couldn't have provided. It, it's it's stupid and it's it's cowardice. And then the movie tries to pull you back in and it does it fairly effectively with the idea that he becomes a child who is homeless and, and is suffering from dementia. And that that is a pretty jarring construct to watch and it is pretty upsetting. And then of course, and it, and, and you got to give him credit again, like again to Fincher again to Roth for this, but to see this through to its end, which is very challenging to conceptualize, never mind a watch is, you know, he's going to die a baby. And so he, that's what happens. You know, you see a baby take its last breath in this right. movie. I don't know that I would have handled it the way they did. I sure. don't. That was a bit too much for me to watch. It was a bridge too far a little bit for me. Um, it was definitely something that hit hard 
from the standpoint yeah. of like my sense my sensitivity if you and, will and isn't it interesting that you had almost three hours to prepare yourself for that yeah. possibility yeah but and it, it still up ended on you. that way yeah and it sneaks up on you because that last those last few years of his life move very quickly you know and um it's a it's a real i'm not envious of anyone that was trying to bring this to screen you know and i'm i'm, I'm still baffled that Number one, it was made. Number two, that it was successful. And I guess number three, that it won awards and accolades and everything else. I mean, this is a weird flick filled with tangents. It's loose. It's very loosely constructed. I wish that it was thinned down. I don't think you needed to dwell as deeply into the backstories of all these other characters as it did. I think it goes on these tangents way too long and it just, it's, it's unnecessary. I don't know what Roth was trying to do, but at the end he tries to tie it all up in a bow and say like opportunity exists outside of youth or whatever. You know, it's kind of like, well, we didn't need any of that. We don't need to go back to go Gateau and his clock and Elias Codier's looked like Dr. Robotnik from the Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> the bad guy from Sonic the Hedgehog. He looked just like him. It was so distracting. <laughs> just cut him out. Cut it out. <laughs> and it's coming from a director who the prior few movies really wouldn't have built you up for this at all. You didn't see this coming from david fincher at all it's a total outlier in his sensibility for sure yeah i think he's a very clinical filmmaker i think he's a very intentional filmmaker very few things happen on accident in a david fincher film and so sure. it makes me wonder what an absolute disaster this movie would have been in somebody else's hands and mm. is this movie maybe the best possible version of this story you could get on film because you gave it to a guy who although at first blush doesn't seem like it lines with his sensibility, but his skill as a director might've been the only thing holding the whole thing together. I think you're right. It has a really weird production history where it was optioned back in the eighties. Originally had a number of different directors, including Spielberg, Ron Howard, Gary Ross, and even Spike Jones, with Charlie Kaufman taking a stab at the screenplay. So, I mean, this is some, this has got over the, over the course of about 20 years, this thing was in development, some sort of development, and it falls into Fincher. And honestly, when I'm watching it, I can see all of Fincher's attention to detail, all of his very methodical, carefully chosen camera movements and perfect lighting the cinematography here is absolutely spellbinding it's from um, a chilean director of photography named claudio miranda who would go on to win the oscar for uh best cinematography for life of pi so th this guy i mean it, it is it is a gorgeous frame after frame after frame gorgeous movie to look at but again the technical wizardry of making a old man child and and having performance work seamlessly with makeup effects work seamlessly with visual effects is astounding and it only fincher zemeckis maybe but it's remarkable to hear you say that this shares the cinematographer with life of pi because we were talking before we started recording about who this movie feels more like who else could have directed this 
And Life of Pi was that movie on the tip of my tongue. I couldn't mm-hmm. quite get. It. I kept. I always mix Life of Angley. Pi up with with Cloud <laughs> Atlas for some reason. Sure, but <laughs> the so, Wachowskis. But yeah, yeah, it was. I had that Life of Pi aesthetic yeah. in my head, mm-hmm. and so it's interesting to hear you talk about how a director like David Fincher has to have his hands so tightly on the rein to keep that from absolutely unraveling. Mm-hmm. And although it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, I agree with you. I think that it's astounding that this movie is not a battlefield earth style disaster. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Which it might've been in the hands of someone like Ron Howard, who probably would have just tried to make cocoon three, you know what I mean? Or something like, yeah. you know, it's just, I think, you know, Fincher, he's such an interesting guy. I have a really complicated relationship with him because growing up, he was my favorite music video director. So just to name a few of my favorites that he did, like Madonna's Express Yourself and Oh Father, Aerosmith's Janie Got a Gun, and Billy Idol's Cradle of Love video. So like these are all ones that I love. For the kids listening at home, music videos... Oh, were a geez. thing where uh, they would... They're they on would, YouTube and they would have now. Like, yeah, I think. <laughs> but I love that you are of the age where you had favorite music video directors, of right? Of course like, I what did, a, yeah. What a cool moment yeah, in time that was. That's like <laughs> well, now everybody, I mean, has their became... favorite, everybody has their favorite TikTok star, their social media influencer. This was your version of that thing. So yeah, It was, yeah. But I mean, he went on to make movies like, you know, Seven in the Game and Fight Club and whatever. What was <laughs> that know? first I mean, one? things that were... Seven. But I look a lot older. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yay. Mission accomplished. Level but up. I, but what I was trying to say was like, Fincher, I actually don't, I'm not a big fan. I know you're a big fan, but I'm not a big fan of his feature work. You know, after being such a big fan of his, of his music videos and his visual style, and to find out he was directing Alien 3, which was, <laughs> Alien, the Aliens movies were among my favorite things in the universe at that age. And he and I go and see Alien Three in the cinema, and I wanted to kill David Fincher. Yeah, fair. <laughs> and okay. I know there was studio intervention, whatever else. And now, being an adult, I can look back and say there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in Alien Three. I still don't think it's great. But then, when I was in film school, I was writing a, a serial killer FBI thriller, and I felt that it was maybe a sort of thematically adjacent or plot adjacent to Seven. So I was worried. So I never watched Seven, ever. Never watched it. Have you still never seen it? I still never watched it. I still never did. And I know all about it. I know everything about the movie. I've seen scenes from it and whatever else, but I've never watched it. And, you know, I I went back maybe even a couple of years ago and watched the game and I had seen it before. Mm -hmm. Um, I won't revisit Fight Club. I saw that when it was out. Right it hasn't aged out, terribly I just, well. I think it's not a great I think, movie. I think the co-opting of uh, the the snowflake idea by all those men's rights crybabies who really don't understand what the movie is saying at all yeah. has made it almost impossible for me it to also, revisit. It's it's another one that has just an abhorrently awful third act. Sure. Another one where it just falls apart completely. Panic Room I loved. And I do love Zodiac. I, do. I think that Zodiac is maybe one of the best films of the century. I have said this yeah. to you 200 yeah. years from now, when they are talking about the films of the early 2000s, Zodiac is in that conversation. And I don't think it's even a question. 
Yeah, they'll 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 really love that movie from the 2000s that paid complete homage to everything that was great about the 70s. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, it's not a movie about the 2000s, but if you're going to talk about the best right. films made in right. the first 10 years of of the aughts. Yeah. Zodiac is there for me. Zodiac and Children of Men, I think, are that's it. Jason, this week's episode is certainly not going to age backwards. We are going to move forward into our next segment, the bottom five. This week, we wanted to go ahead and do our bottom five diseases, Mm -hmm. which begs the question, (laughs) what the fuck is a top five disease? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there's any real difference. Nope. The logic breaks right down. Welcome to Film Jitsu. So with all that being said, I'd love to know what you had at your number five. Uh, Number five, I had the dog flu from Isle of Dogs. So Wes Anderson's 2018 stop motion flick. It's a terrific watch, but it has this brutal central premise that makes it hard to stomach a canine illness that results in weight loss, dizziness, aggressive behavior, and alternately narcolepsy and insomnia infecting dogs in a fictional city in Japan. Uh, All the dogs are quarantined and sent to Trash Island, which is then given a new name, the Isle of Dogs. So the story follows a young boy named Atari who goes to find his best friend Spot. And it's such a heartbreaking idea, like a life without dogs. Mm, No, thank you. It struck me as something that would be so terrible to have happen. So that's sort of the the approach that I took with my list. I have to ask... uh... Was part of your motivation for including this on your list, knowing full well that talking to me about Wes Anderson usually yeah. goes sideways? Is yeah. this where you're trying to out me to our audience as somebody who does not appreciate Wes Anderson? Although I will say, as I mentioned before, you kind of cured me of that after making me watch The Book of Henry when I was like, <laughs> oh, this is this is what a Wes Anderson movie would be like if it, if it had any emotions whatsoever. Okay. So I'm more open to the idea of Wes Anderson. I've never seen Isle of Dogs because I've just always resisted Wes Anderson. It just, it didn't seem for me. Uh, so you're missing a great voice cast too. If you, if you haven't, you know, I mean, these are, these are amazing people that are, that are giving voices to these dogs. So Jeff Goldblum doing a voice of a dog in Isle of Dogs probably directly led to my sister naming her cat, Jeff Goldblum. Okay. Well, we can be thankful for that. My number five is my least inventive, my most (laughs) obvious. I'm sure this is going to appear on your list. I'd be Uh, surprised if it didn't, unless you just left it off knowing we didn't want to have a duplicate. But how could we do this? You mentioned it earlier. uh 1996 film, Jack. Oh, Oh, shit. Jack, a (laughs) movie about a a kid who ages four times faster than normal. So right. he looks like a grown ass Robin Williams going into the <laughs> the fourth grade or the fifth grade, whatever it was. I get it. it, it okay. It's a showcase for Robin Williams to be Robin Williams. Right. It's, I yeah. mean, this was, it, this was just 
setting up a tee that you place Robin Williams on and let him go. But man, the idea was so much better in big where you can have an adult playing a child without this tragic disease. (laughs) That's awful. So this to me, Jack is just like the saddest version of big ever. And I don't need that in my life. I really don't. This was on my bottom five film follow-ups. It was Francis Ford Coppola. And I, I, I didn't want to include it again in, on a list, another bottom five. I think that I never really want to talk about Jack ever again. So. New rule. New film jitsu rule right here. That's it. Done. That's it. We're Stick done. a fork Jack's, in Jack. It's Jack's done. Out. He's out. That's Jack and Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. We're all done with both of them forever. Bye-bye. You're out. You're yanked. But it belongs all on right. this list. So there we go. There See you go. forever, Jack. Well, my, my number four is osteogenesis imperfecta which is from unbreakable and glass both of them yeah and i can't think of anything that's i can't think of too many things worse than having a body that's so brittle as samuel jackson's character in those movies Uh, you know what m night gets kicked a little too much around these parts for my sure i i wouldn't say i'm the kind of fan that would say he's faultless Yep. You know, the village's surprise was really easily spotted in the first 20 minutes, and the happening is shockingly bad. But he has had some pretty great stuff in his movies, too. And in his comic book trilogy of Unbreakable, Split, and Glass, we get some really cool takes on superheroes and supervillains. And while James McAvoy's multiple personalities steal most of the thunder, I think it's Sam Jackson's Mr. Glass that proves to be more memorable and way more heartbreaking. You know, if you want to talk about awful, just watch the sequence of him fall down the escalator in glass. Mm. Like how much you cringe as an audience, as a viewer. It's so, so challenging. And even worse was a scene that Shyamalan shot for Unbreakable, which he didn't use, but he used in glass. And that was the scene where seven-year-old Mr. Glass is getting into an amusement ride, a carnival ride that will spin him around and is bumpy. And that ride, that sequence is just harrowing. So yeah, I think, I think I, that's a horrific disease. And I definitely think it belongs on a bottom five list. I don't want to respond to you, Jay, because <laughs> I might have a little bit more to say about that oh, myself a little yeah, later on. There you go. There you go. And it again speaks to the difference between you and me and and what we bring to the table here on Film Jitsu, because I was prepared to just call it that Mr. Glass disease. And here you are perfectly (laughs) pronouncing. What was it one more time? Osteogenesis imperfecta. See, look at you go. See, (laughs) we we know which side the bread is buttered on here at Film Jitsu. That's for sure. Well, we'll talk about that again in a few minutes. But (laughs) my number four, we can either get into it or not. I certainly know that the internet has. So here we go. I'm just going to give it a whirl. My number four is the rage virus from 28 oh. days later, mm-hmm. not because of what it is, but because of how I've had to fucking listen to people since this movie came out talking about how it's not a zombie movie. Zombies. This isn't the, it's the rage virus. It's not a zombie. <laughs> just, the the splitting of hairs bullshit <laughs> that yeah, I, I have had to endure as a horror fan going into this. It, people really, really give a shit about this distinction. <laughs> so in case you're not aware, 28 Days Later, it's a, a really fantastic 
and this is where you get in trouble, zombie movie. Some people would just completely hang you for that. But it's a movie where you become infected and you essentially turn into a fast zombie, right? You run. They're very physically able. They can chase you down. They can hunt you. So they, they aren't. It's almost like you're rabid. It's like yeah, it's rabid. almost like and a rabbit, or it's exactly like the zombies ish in Wreck. Yep, it's the same same thing. It's so. a fantastic movie. I like the sequel, it is. but that's not my point. It's on here not because <laughs> it's the worst zombie virus, but because it, it has just brought on this like internet hellscape of careful. You can't call it a zombie movie, or you can. It just sucks. I'm even tired of talking about the problem right now. That's why it's on my my bottom five is basically a middle finger to the internet. So the rage virus, I'm sorry. It's a zombie movie. I'm sorry. It's a zombie movie. Just get over it. The debate itself is the disease. That's it. So there that, you go. That's why it's on my list. Perfect. <laughs> my number three is Matoba, which is from 1995's Outbreak. Wolfgang Peterson, director of several hits, including Air Force One, the perfect storm and in the line of fire and never ending story was Come on. at the <laughs> be nice. I love it. I, I do I too. It. I think it's a great movie. I never do too. Story is amazing. I think so. But anyway, Wolfgang Peterson directed this uh, cautionary tale about a communicable disease that enters the good old U S of a in the lungs of a poached monkey. And before you can say Gesundheit, people's organs are hemorrhaging and Morgan Freeman is called in to keep things quarantined. Seriously, there's little as scary as an airborne virus that makes you bleed out from the eyes that has no cure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know full well, since as long as you've known me, anybody that's sick, I call them the outbreak monkey. So (laughs) outbreak monkey is my shorthand for anybody who isn't feeling good Uh, and which has become really useful over the last two years of a respiratory pandemic. That's for sure. So uh, I think it's a great pick. I didn't include it on my list almost because I was having a hard time picking a, a, a sort yep. of real world disease. You know, it isn't a yeah. fictional disease. It's so, you know, Ebola or Motaba right. or, you know, whatever. Right. You know, and Motaba is, it's fictional for the movie, but it's Ebola. That's right. what kind of what they're right. talking about. That's and all so, it was, yeah. So I, I couldn't really narrow it down to one, but I think if I was, I would have gone with this because it's a film I really like. It's funny that you mentioned that because I did choose it from the others. Like I thought mm. about the Stan's Captain trips and then I thought about, of course, Contagion and I decided the Stan didn't deserve it because it brought in that supernatural element with literally the hand of God coming down in both versions. Well, you're uh, you're you're kind of drinking my milkshake here, Jay, because my number three is Captain Trips. Oh, fuck you. From the stand. <laughs> <laughs> I actually. OK, so we're, let's have this conversation. I All went right. with Captain Trips because I feel like. Any disease that wipes out the human population and in the process creates an existential war between the forces of good <laughs> and yeah, evil on the planet yeah. is a pretty hardcore full stack <laughs> motherfucker, right? It is. So it is. That's true. I, I think Captain Trips could rightly land on a bottom five yep. disease, not may- maybe because of the disease itself, but because of the perhaps all too currently familiar yeah, effect yeah. that it had on the world. Talk about being ahead of its time. There were moments in my real life over the, the past two years of the pandemic that felt awful standy to me. I will forever remember being in line at a, a BJ's wholesale club and there was an armed guard at the toilet paper. It was one of the, <laughs> the most stark 
uh, visuals I have from the entire pandemic of really mm. how close society felt like it came to ending up the stand. Yeah. <laughs> and so sure. I think Captain Trips, uh, yeah, it, it 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 required the hand of God to get involved. And so sure. that that seems pretty legit to me for a bottom five. Well, we're good. we're sticking with Stephen King just to Oh good. All right. <laughs> and that's the shit weasels from Dreamcatcher. Are they a disease? <laughs> yeah. Hell I yeah. thought they were aliens. No, nah, well, they I mean they are, but it's partly an alien. I mean it's You know what? If you got weasels coming out of your ass, who are we to split hairs on that? You're diseased. Yeah. <laughs> People hate this movie. People mm-hmm. hate this movie, but man, I don't know. I kind of love it. <laughs> it's just completely <laughs> batshit. It unleashes madness. It's directed by the very esteemed Lawrence Kasdan, who's you know best known as the director of The Big Chill and the screenwriter for The Empire Strikes Back. Right. And it's written by none other than the Princess Bride scribe William Goldman. So it's a Stephen King adaptation, but on its surface, it's a lot like Outbreak in that it's about a really horrific virus and the efforts to contain it led by, you guessed it, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> He's been keeping us safe for years. Right. So instead of a simian originated virus, like you said, it's a it's inhaled spores that are alien in creation um, and they cause you to shit decent sized weasel like aliens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, seriously, I like you, that you felt it was important to scale the size of the weasels coming out of your ass. Big, it was like decent size. I mean, like none of those totally acceptable, tiny, easy to shit out weasels. That's it was These important are... that everybody knows that they're also they're uncomfortable. These aren't baby weasels. No. These are full-grown no. shit weasels. <laughs> I don't think you've known horror until you've seen Jason Lee try to battle the urge to pick up a clean toothpick off a shit and blood-stained floor <laughs> while he's sitting on a closed toilet lid, which is keeping down a thrashing shit weasel. <laughs> I really it's... thought you were just going to say you haven't known horror until you've shit a weasel, which is also 100% true. I mean, the cinema has given us many, many ways to die, but blast shitting a murderous alien weasel out of your ass has to be the all time worst. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, I, I have to just take a second here and, and step away and go over to my list of movies that I had intended to make you watch. And I got to cross this off the list because I, I didn't know you loved this one quite so hard because this I had this on my list as a potential future episode. Oh, wow. Yeah, I do. Nope. I actually like it. it it's crazy. It's very, very crazy. <laughs> well, speaking of crazy, uh, this one is a, a little bit more visceral for sure, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk about it on Film Jitsu. I am going with the flesh-eating virus in the 2002 film Cabin Fever. Interestingly, just a little bit ago, we did an Eli Roth film on our podcast, Knock Knock, and at the time, I think I finally made my mind up on Eli Roth as a director. Uh, as a huge fan of horror, I just have to be honest that he's not my particular brand of whiskey. And, you know, here I am with an Eli Roth film at the number mm. two spot on my list. <laughs> I have an explanation here. This is a really gross movie disease, mm-hmm. which I think plays well to Roth's sensibilities without the usual sadism and victimization that turns yeah. me off with so much of what he does. In this case, the material fits the director the leg shaving scene. Have you mm. seen this, Jay? I mean, yeah. there's a flesh eating disease. It's, and no, she, it's a great shaves, choice. Ooh, wow. 
I just don't like Eli Roth so much that I I, I kept him off. You know. Yeah. I just, sure. Sure. I, 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 this I is mean, the it's only not, one of his movies that great, I think I like. No, it, it it is. It's it to me. It was an obvious choice. I felt like everybody's going to know Cabin Fever. It's sort of yeah. like a given. I wanted to go a little bit in a different direction that says the guy that chose outbreak, whatever. <laughs> well, like, whatever. there was a 2016 remake that I guess used the exact same shooting script as hmm. the original. And with a lot of shots replicated, but in the inverse, what <laughs> I will never watch a remake of this film. <laughs> well, my number one, we're going to go with um, childless from children of men, which you, mentioned earlier he said that children of men and zodiac are two of the best of this century i think you said right i I feel very comfortable with that and i think i feel very comfortable with saying children of men is definitely one of the best of the century i might not be as high on zodiac as you but i think when i thought about this list i had one question that put this movie at number one and it was can you imagine a world with no children laughing? There is no worse thought than that. And I think it was a disease or a condition that happens in the movie that leads to the infertility. So maybe I'm bending the rules a little bit. I don't know, but uh, it's film jitsu. So I feel as though there There are are no no rules. This this isn't numb. No, you're good. You're good. I don't think it gets more harrowing or dystopian than the inability for the human race to have children to move on. But due to some sort of mass disease or condition that's never really explained, that's exactly what happens. And this is a virtuoso film, period. In every From way. The script to the acting to the to the direction, which, you know, Alfonso Coron has become maybe the best director of this century. I mean, he might be. It's it's debatable. He's in the running, absolutely. at least. Yeah. I mean, he makes absolutely compelling cinema. And this movie, I think, is still his best. Yeah, I wouldn't throw around a phrase like flawless just in yeah. a cavalier way. Yeah. It's a pretty flawless film. Yeah. 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 I agree. It's a great I pick. I'm I'm actually ashamed that I didn't think of it when I when I think <laughs> of it disease. You're right. And I don't know, maybe that's just because that movie kind of hits me in so many other ways that it seems For to sure. be about so many other things than the disease itself that I didn't right. think of it, but it's, it's a, yeah. a perfectly, but it motivates everything that happens. Absolutely. So it's, yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right. As always, <laughs> which of course brings me back to what we were talking about before uh, the Mr. Glass disease. That's what I'm calling yeah. it. The Mr. Glass yeah. disease. That's my number one. I, I think you said it all perfectly. I've never broken a bone. I don't mm. want to break a bone. The idea of breaking a bone makes my stomach churn. You know, <laughs> I'm a big football fan. And and whenever I see those nasty slow motion, high def injuries on TV, oh. I almost always puke. I made the mistake recently <laughs> of going down like this YouTube rabbit hole because I am an idiot and a glutton for punishment where I was watching all of these videos of, of sports injuries the time Lawrence Taylor broke Joe Theismann's leg in half. Oh, oh. The wrestler Sid Vicious, who jumps off the top rope, he's like my size. He jumps off the top rope and his lower leg just folds like a card table. Yeah. Then I watched about a million nauseating mixed martial arts injuries. Jason, oh. what, what I'm saying to you here is I'm an idiot. Why would I do this to myself? <laughs> I don't know. So the idea of breaking a bone at the slightest touch Sounds like just about the worst thing I can think of. And 
I, I'm going to skip all of the, the Shyamalan bashing that we've done in the past because you said it exactly right. You know, the thing about him that that is solid is his prowess as a technical filmmaker. Mm. And the the scenes of Jackson breaking bones, Oof. they are not effects-heavy scenes. This is, Mm-mm. he has done a good enough job building the world and selling me the character that by the time that moment happens, I believe it. I believe that a man could break. And so, yeah. so... That was it for me. I think I think the Mr. Glass disease absolutely is my number one. I think what's really important about that condition is that rarely do you see something in a movie that elicits both sympathy and that excessive amount of cringe-inducing fear at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then you use it for a villain so that you feel tremendous sympathy for the villain in the piece. Yeah. And I think that, you know, because of the exceptionally memorable performance from Jackson you get a terrific villain that you actually care about, which is just so rare. I, I can't think of too many that are like that. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you had that on your list, actually. If there was one that we duplicated, I'm glad it was that one. After so much grimness with all the disease and death, I want to move on to our staff picks this week. I want to cleanse the palate. Well, no, I'm just lying. I didn't change a damn thing. In fact, if anything, I'm doubling down with my staff pick this week and going extra grim. (laughs) Look, I love end of the world movies, big or small. They are 100% my jam. But what I'm often disappointed by with Apocalyptic Fair is that they throw the handbrake on almost every time and stop short of the hopeless cataclysm I so desire. So that's partially why I have to give it to Adam McKay for Don't Look Up. While so many people are arguing about whether it's funny enough, which I think it is, whether it's too heavy-handed, which it is, And whether or not the cast choices are on point, for sure they are. I'm sitting over here thinking, hell yes, because the movie commits to the hardest thing any movie can commit to, killing the entire planet. Now, I know you gave some props to the stand for killing most of the planet. Sure. No, no, no. It wasn't good enough for Don't Look Up. It wants to kill everyone. And good on you, Don't Look Up. You get the best performance I've ever seen at from Leonardo DiCaprio, who brilliantly plays against type here. And you let Jennifer Lawrence have some fun being edgy and awkward and she gets to kiss Timothy Chalamet. Plus, you get the always wonderful Melanie Linsky, who has a small role with really terrific moments. And that's just something the cinema has been far too short in supply of. Although she does lead the cast on Showtime's Yellow Jackets. And so if you haven't seen that, you should. Um, But yeah, it's fun to laugh at the end of the world. Because I'm not sure there's ever been a movie that better captures the realistic nature of what the end would look like. We wouldn't be saved by Bruce Willis. No, we'd we'd die arguing about who's right and who's wrong and never once realizing that all of it matters exactly as much as a squirt of piss at the end of the day. So good on you, don't look up. And good on all the A-listers involved. 
It takes balls to be this nihilistic. Anything with Melanie Linsky, I'm I'm willing to check out. I right? also think it's worth Togetherness, uh, starring her. We might have even mentioned this on a past episode, but Mark Duplass and and Amanda Peet, and and she's great. She's also great in what I think is maybe my favorite episode of The Shield ever. I can't believe we're talking about Don't Look Up and Melanie Linsky. And Melanie Linsky is the thing I'm I'm harping on here, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad you are. <laughs> I, I'm excited. I'm excited. You know what? Here's the sign that it's it's worth watching. It's a Leonardo DiCaprio film that you just recommended. So oh, I mean, tells he's me everything so I need good. To know. So good. Well, I would like to say that I could I could pull us back up out of this doom and gloom. I guess we were just in a mood this week, uh, apparently. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm going with a movie that I, I just saw recently and didn't know a lot about. I had stumbled across a best horror of the last couple of years kind of list. And there was a list of movies that I hadn't seen, hadn't heard of. They were definitely more of your festival fare than your big market release. And so this week I am recommending a movie from 2016 directed by Liam Gavin called A Dark Song. Hmm. This is about a, a young woman who meets an occultist and they go to this house out in the country and begin to perform these really complicated rituals because she has lost her son and she wants to talk to her son again. Mm. And she's got some motivations a little bit beyond that. The The occultist here is played by an actor named Stephen Orm, who is just fantastic in this in this role. He's just he's an asshole from the second you meet him. But he's mm. a competent and capable asshole like you. You you never think this guy's a charlatan from from mm. the outset everybody's motivations seem pretty clear. This guy is the real deal and she is the real deal. And they are genuinely fucking with some dark magic. A much lesser movie would have spent 45 minutes explaining to us who this mother was, what happened yeah. to her, you know, why her kid died. It brings us right to the moment that these two meet. They've already been in contact and off we go into, uh, I think probably very deeply well-researched rituals of this woman putting herself just through the absolute ringer, both physically, emotionally, spiritually. And you want to talk about third acts in the third act. There are sequences that are bone chilling. So this is a movie that you talked about. Don't look up as having the, the balls to actually go all the way with its premise. This is a movie that has a shot towards the end that will either make or break this entire film for you where this movie decides to go is so bold that you will either say, I will never forget this movie. I will never forget this image or you will, the house of cards will come crumbling down and you will dismiss this movie as garbage based on this one. I can't believe they did that thing. I am very confident that you and our audience being discerning film goers will buy in the way that I did. I think A Dark Song from 2016 is a fantastic watch. And may all my transgressions be washed. And my transgressions be washed. And make me chaste and pure. Washed and chaste and pure. Make me chaste and pure. May my light be here now. May my light be here. May my light guiding me. Guiding me. Protecting me. Protecting me. Protecting me. Mommy. 
Well, it's that time on our show, Mike, where we get your assignment for next week, the film that I'm going to dare you to watch. And look, you brought me into the film Jitsu Fold and you gave me a little bit of a warning. You warned me against going too obscure with my picks because who other than me would watch a movie made for a buck 50 that's been seen by 11 people. So it was a fair point. But recently I stumbled across a rather quirky flick that begged me to go against your wishes. And while this flick is only 75 minutes long, I did actually ask you to watch another movie beforehand. So this is a bit of a twofer that I think will at the very least make for some interesting conversation. So next week's movie is the 2013 Curio by Filipino-American director H.P. Mendoza called I Am a Ghost. And as homework, I requested that you also take in 2017's critically lauded A Ghost Story, a low-budget passion project by director David Lowry. I Am a Ghost is described as a horror film about a ghost who haunts her own Victorian house every day, wondering why she cannot leave. After watching A Ghost Story, made on the cheap by an A-list director for $100,000, I'm going to be very, very curious of what you think of I Am a Ghost, which was made for $10,000. It's available to stream on Shutter and Tubi, in case anyone else wants to catch it before listening to Mike's thoughts. So with that, I Am a Ghost, from H.P. Mendoza. I'm excited because I don't know a single thing about this movie. <laughs> and this is a unique thing for us. You did come to me and say, hey, I have a movie. I want to set you up with it. But I want you to do a yep. little bit of homework first. And yep. I am I am nothing if not a good sport. And so I dove right in because David Lowry's A Ghost Story was a movie that was really critically acclaimed. I had heard a lot about it. I think it was a very divisive film at the time. People mm -hmm. either really loved it or really hated mm -hmm. it. I never managed to catch up with it. And I've been kicking myself ever since. So this was mm -hmm. a really great, like, Oh good. Now I'm finally going to sit down and watch this thing. Mm -hmm. So what is our bottom five going to be? It, the obvious thing for us to do as a bottom five would be ghosts right or something along those lines for this movie but i i'm never i never want to go obvious you know me too well we've done it enough already <laughs> the big similarity between those two movies that i've had you watch is that they're very low budget productions so what i am tasking us both with is to find the bottom five low to no budget movies that we have seen let's talk about them man you have really set me up to ride in the back seat of this next episode because <laughs> this is where you live and breathe. You are you are like my Yoda when it comes to this kind of thing. I feel like I should just give you 10 spots and <laughs> shut the fuck up. That's probably what I'll do. I think that we're going to spend most of the show next week probably talking about these two movies, A Ghost Story and I Am a Ghost. So I think... If our bottom fives are pretty quick, that'll that'll be okay. <laughs> well, that sounds like a great time. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, I I do like it when sometimes I go into a movie. It's a real gift to know nothing about a movie. Yeah. It doesn't happen often. And so it, when somebody can say, watch this movie and I don't know anything about it, even if I fucking hate it. And I'm, I'm hoping that maybe I will. Uh, I'm, I look forward <laughs> to the experience. So this is this is going to be a fun one. Um Hopefully it'll be a discovery for me. It'll certainly, I think, be a discovery for our audience too. So uh, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Let's do it. I am a ghost. As always, we have been your hosts. I am Jay. And I am Mike. Mike.
and we'll see you next time. I feel like a real heel that I just made you watch uh, the curious case of Benjamin Button for like an entire work week of your life. And this thing is, what'd you say? 75 minutes, 75 minutes. That's just like two times through the Dunkin Donuts line. That's <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs>